if you're not getting the support you need, if you're not getting the learning opportunities you need, if you're feeling overwhelmed with the caseload, there are better jobs out there. Welcome to the SLP Cohort Catch-Up. I'm your host, Erin White. In today's episode, I'm catching up with Beck. You'll hear about how a love of all things voice brought her to the field of speech pathology and how life experience and a challenging clinical placement led her to find her career passion in the areas of autism and clinical education. Content warning. This episode talks about mental health, anxiety, and depression. It also talks about the experience of being bullied. Please take care when listening. If you need support, please see the show notes for some available resources in Australia. For our international listeners outside of Australia, there are some terminologies in this episode that you might not be familiar with. NDIS is the National Disability Insurance Scheme which is Australian government funding for people with disabilities. And HECS is the Higher Education Loan Program, also known as Student Loans or Student Debt. Enjoy the episode. Thank you. Lovely to be here, Erin. So nice to see you. I was lucky to see you in person a few days ago, and now I get to see your beautiful face again today. It, it was so lovely. I haven't seen anyone from uni in a really long time, so it was so nice to see you and hear what you're up to and things. Yeah, and Beck, you are the first interviewee of the podcast who's actually listened to the podcast because all the other interviews were done last year. So you're in this unique position where you kind of have an idea of what to expect maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been really great listening to the podcast. And um, I think I was saying to you, Erin, that you've got such an amazing voice for this. Oh, it's just you. so clear, no glottal fry. It's just amazing. <laughs> it means a lot coming from you, Beck, because as we'll discuss, you are, in my mind, you're a voice guru. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think so, but sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> what has interested you the most about the stories from our cohort, or what's maybe surprised you about? people and where they are now yeah it's crazy it's like listening to our cohort who um you know it feels like only yesterday we were all students and then hearing these stories about these very um professional um you know the achievements and things that some of these um people you've interviewed have made is incredible so that's great and I think you know listening to some of the specialty areas that people have gone into has been really interesting um and also the people that haven't um kept with their career as speech pathologists where they've been going so it's interesting there's been a few of those yeah and it's interesting all the different pathways we could possibly take yeah, amazing, isn't it? Mm, we know the profession is broad, but the skill set is even broader, which is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we're already warmed up, but I'm going to give you some warm up questions anyway. Sure. <laughs> Just so people can get to know you a bit. Beck, where do you live? I live in Diggers Rest, Victoria. In Victoria. How far out of the city of Melbourne is that? 
Uh, depends if you're talking peak or not peak. <laughs> um, <laughs> not peak uh, takes me, I, I work part-time in the city. So not peak takes me about an hour. Peak can take me two hours. Ooh, so rough. Yes, yes. So with all that travel time, you might need to drink some coffee. No, do you know what I do? I listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, which podcasts do you listen to, Beck? Only the best, only the best. <laughs> oh, lovely. Do you drink coffee? I definitely drink coffee mm. and it's a skinny cap. Although with the hot weather, you know, a, a nice latte doesn't go astray too. Oh, nice. Mm. Do you still have a hex debt? Very much so. I am in the group of people that choose not to even look at how much that hex debt is. I just will be pleasantly surprised when um, less of it is being taken out of my wage. Yeah. <laughs> One day you'll be like, why am I getting more money? Oh, it's paid off. Great. <laughs> mm, exactly. Nice. Do you own or rent where you live? I own or the bank owns and um, I live there. Yep. Yeah, the bank owns and you live there. (laughs) Mm. So do you have a favourite holiday destination? Oh, look, I, this sounds a little, um, a little tame, I suppose, but I did a gig up at, so I, um, I have been a professional singer um, for a long time. I'm not anymore, but had been um, and I did a gig where they flew us up to Hamilton Island and we had you know rooms overlooking the water and dinners booked for us on the beach and it was so good so I think if I if I had a little bit of spare cash I think I'd love to go back up there and just have a really chill holiday. Mm, that sounds lovely and being from Victoria originally are you an AFL supporter? Not a um, huge AFL fan, but I did a guy I went to um, high school with that I used to play kick to kick with at lunchtime. Um, yeah, he used to play for Richmond, so um, I say Richmond. There you go. Well, you're, you're up in the big league there, kick to kick with a professional player. Yeah, he used to beat me, <laughs> <laughs> obviously. <laughs> oh, it's a good story anyway. So, Beck, switching into the speech pathology realm, what are you doing for work now? So I've got two elements to my work. I've got a private practice, Grasshopper's Speech Therapy, where we mainly employ AHAs and mainly work in the area of early intervention, so zero to six um, with um, multiple areas of delay, so NDIS field mostly. And then I also work at um, ACU, Australian Catholic University, and I I work in the teaching clinics there every Friday. Um, So we see mostly NDIS clients, but we see a lot of uh, refugees and um, families that are unable to afford um, services and are not eligible for services like NDIS. So that's great. And um, with my ACU role, I also do some tutoring as well. So I've been tutoring in the um, yeah, the intensives, which is um, paediatric intensives, which um, is a little bit like the problem-based learning model that I know a, a lot of us master's cohort did at Latrobe. And I also teach in the paediatric language subject as well. Amazing. So you've got a bit of an academic hat on, a clinical supervision hat, and then you've got supervision, I guess, for your allied health assistants, your AHAs. Do you have a clinical caseload in your private practice? Yeah, I do. I do. I do. I probably, 
um, my clinical caseload has gone down since, um, you know, with the more, more people we hire, the more my caseload goes down, but I will always keep a small caseload. Sounds like you're busy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so every day is probably different because you've got a diff- lot of different hats on, but what would a typical day look like for you uh, in your private practice, for example? Okay, well, in the private practice, um, it's all home and community-based. So we'll either be going into someone's home, going into childcare, going into kindergarten and doing our sessions there. The sessions are very much a combination of upskilling the important people in the child's life or direct therapy, and usually it's both. So that's um, that. And then there's the um, AHA supervision. So we'll do a lot of joint sessions where we'll go out together and we'll work through the strategies and see how they're going um, in that um, face-to-face model. Then sometimes we'll be meeting for supervision across Zoom. And then other times I'm writing up plans for the AHAs to follow. I was going to ask about that because um, some people might not know what an AHA allied health assistant is and what they do. Could you tell us a bit about who is an allied health assistant? Okay, so allied health assistants can be anybody. They don't actually have to have a background in a certain area. However, a lot of them are, um, for speech pathology, a lot of them are speech students. So I suppose I'm lucky that I work at ACU and have an abundance of students there. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got some beautiful, beautiful um, AHAs. So basically what happens is I'll go out, I'll do the assessment sessions and then I'll go back and write up a therapy plan, hand over to the AHA um, where possible. It's a joint session to do that handover. Then the AHA continues on with the therapy plan and then I'll go in and do review appointments and then we update the therapy plan and the cycle goes on. I could imagine there are many benefits to this model. What would be some of the benefits of having an AHA working with clients from your perspective as a business owner and then from maybe a family's perspective? Yeah, well, we started doing this model because people were coming onto our wait lists and they were saying, so this was when it was um, just me in the business, people were coming onto the wait list and they'd say, "Um, how long until we um, can see you? And my honest answer was like, maybe never at least a few years and maybe never. And um, I know a lot of areas are the same, are really struggling to get services. So we started the AHA model. And so what it's meant is that we've got um, availability. So when people contact us, they say, do you have availability for speech therapy? We can say yes through the AHA program. And so a benefit for that for families is they can maybe get in a bit quicker. Price-wise, costing-wise for families, is it different to a speech pathologist? Less than half the price of a speech pathologist. So some of our families use us while we are, um, while they are on the wait list for speech pathology. Um, other families use us as that's their preferred service delivery um, mode. And a lot of families will have, rather than having a speech pathologist once a week, they have an AHA twice a week. Mm. So, for example, um, they might have um, therapy in the home with an AHA and then therapy out of childcare with the AHA. Mm. Yeah. Great. So it sounds like you can really support more people, but also supporting the speech pathologists coming up in the profession too. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite passionate about um, supporting our next generation of speech pathologists. So it's lovely to be able to do that in both of my um, professional roles. Yeah, amazing. So tell me about ACU and what a typical day would look like there for you. Typical day as a PPE or professional practice educator is coming into the ACU speech pathology clinic that um, the students will see um, clients one-to-one. I will what I watch through the, the cameras they have in the rooms um, on, on my computer. And then after they've finished seeing um, those clients, we come in um, for the afternoon and discuss, um, you know, do a fair bit of reflection and do any upskilling that we need to. And yeah, then finish up for the day. And then the tutoring um, side of things is um, usually involves me staying up way too late the night before, um, figuring out the material and then, um, yeah, coming in and um, teaching to um, groups of usually usually about 20 in a class. Wow, okay. Now we're going to get into, you know, your clinical placements, early career and things like that. But just from where you are at the moment, mm-hmm. did Beck back 10 years plus ago, did Beck back then think that she would be here now? Never in a million years, never in a million years. So as you might remember, Erin, um, when I was at uni, I was absolutely diehard I'm going to work in voice. So as I said before, you know, I've done quite a bit of singing and singing teaching and things and that was my inspiration for getting into speech in the first place was wanting to expand my knowledge um, of voice. And, yeah, we'll go into more, we'll go into it more, um, you know, in more detail throughout this um, interview, I'm sure, but um, it was a clinical placement that, completely changed my direction of where I wanted to go. Mm, I've got chills already because I know what story you're going to tell. So um, let's just pull back a bit. You said that you decided to study speech pathology because of a love of voice. Mm. What did you enjoy aside from voice when we were studying the masters? Um, I loved the problem-based learning model. Um, I think that that really suits me much better than, you know, trying to answer multiple choice questions and um, that. So being able to really use your problem-solving skills to work through a case, that that really suited me very well. And then, you know, I loved the people I went to uni with. So I'm pretty sure most people that did the Masters will be able to tell you that it was, it was really hard. It was, uh, you know, there was a lot of content in a short amount of time and we had to, it was the good old step up or step out model um, <laughs> to get through. And it was so nice having um, some um, like-minded people working through it together. Mm. Yeah, it really is a cohort. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And um, what would what did you study before speech pathology? Because you would have had a bachelor's degree before the master's. Mm, I studied a bachelor of communications, and I did a lot of my elective sub- uh, subjects in music. Ah, okay. Did you work between that and the master's in some area, or did you go straight through? I did a lot of singing and singing teaching. Yeah. Okay. So you got into the masters. You enjoyed the problem based learning. What surprised you about the field of speech pathology when you started studying? Oh, look, honestly, I don't think I had a clue what speech pathologists did. I knew what speech pathologists did in um, professional voice singers 
um, for voice, no idea about anyone with, um, you know, Parkinson's or MS, no idea. Didn't, didn't have a clue that speech pathologists worked with that. No idea that we did swallowing. Absolutely no idea. I think that I thought that um, speech pathology was voice and working on lisps mm. and that's all. So everything else surprised me. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a pretty common experience among people who are studying speech pathology. I don't know what we do about this, but how can we, I mean, I know Speech Pathology Australia will have Speech Pathology Australia Week and they'll promote different areas of practice, but we need a rebrand. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So we had a lot of clinical placements at uni. Mm. Can you remember what yours were? Yes, I can. I know you have one very unforgettable one, but what about the the other memorables? (laughs) Look, I had, um, yeah, look, I I just feel like my clinical placement experiences went from one extreme to the other. I had some exceptional, exceptional um, placements with some really special speech pathologists who helped shape my uh, career. And then I had some really, really atrocious, oh, I had one really atrocious one. But which ones did I do? I did um, a school-based phonological processing placement I did another school based with the Department of Education I did transgender voice at uni which was amazing Mm. (laughs) absolutely amazing so interesting yeah I did um, a hospital acute placement which was the one that was not so great Um, a second hospital acute placement and then I did an early intervention placement which was the one that stole my heart Oh, stole your heart. (laughs) And, Beck, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like did you have a tongue tie that you got snipped to be able to go on placement and poke your tongue out? Uh, That's 100%, 100%. So when we were practising doing our oromotor assessments, I wasn't able to do half the tasks. And um, when I went on my hospital placement I would be I'd be dealing with someone with aphasia and I'd be saying okay poke your tongue out as far as you can and they wouldn't be able to understand me so then I would model it but I wasn't able to model it properly and then the um, client or the patient wasn't able to do it properly so yeah I went and had it um, snipped and um, yeah so it's interesting with all of the um, because the thought process around whether we cut uh, tongue ties at birth or or not or you know not just at birth but um you know in young childhood or not is very interesting at the moment it's very very much so we don't we don't cut them as a general rule mm. but yeah it's interesting being someone who has experienced it personally mm. and um yeah so so when I had my son that was one thing I checked and he had a tongue tie did like, he Cut it for me. Cut it. Cut it. Wow. So did you always know that you had it or did you learn that you had it when we were studying the Masters? No, I always knew I had it. Always knew I had it. My brother has one as well. But did it have any functional impact on your life prior to needing to poke out your tongue to model for patients? Oh, this is a really interesting question. I would say absolutely no impact on my swallowing or speech. But if you can imagine... Um, some of the other areas that you use your tongue for in life, um, it, that does have an impact. Oh, yes. <laughs> do I need to put an X rating on this podcast episode? 
Possibly. Possibly. But it's true. You're talking know. about licking lollipops and, and having ice creams. That's, That's right. what you're talking about. That's right. When you when you have a lollipop or an ice cream, you've got to be able to do what you've got to do. <laughs> wow. It's a functional impact for sure. <laughs> snip, snip, snip. <laughs> it's very true. And that's something that in all the discussions we've been hearing, um, I don't hear talked about. And, um, you know, being a teenager growing up and being like, oh, am I going to be able to kiss somebody? <laughs> It's really, really terrifying. It's really terrifying. Um, So I think that the discussion is missing a whole, um, a whole section. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Well, happy we could bring it up here. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Okay, so you were obviously very committed to being a speech pathology student. You were, you know, dedicated to this course that you'd you know launched yourself into. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about the placements that you enjoyed. What did you like about them? Okay. Well, look, my, my transgender voice uh, clinic, I that was where I was thinking I was wanting to work was in voice. The people that came in as our patients were absolutely inspirational and um, just, just absolutely incredible. Some of the stories that we heard about their lives so far and um, what they had had to overcome to get to the place where they were coming in for voice therapy um, was, yeah, was absolutely inspiring and incredible and I'm so glad for that experience. But my favourite placement was my early intervention placement. So this was my last placement that I did and basically we worked with children with delays in two or more developmental areas so this would now this is now the NDIS um, space Mm -hmm. and I was just blown away I was working in a team with people that were so holistic and so passionate so so passionate about their work and for the first time I got introduced to autism so I was somebody I had never I'd never met a person with autism before I had nobody in my life that was autistic and I didn't know what it looked like at all but I think I loved on this placement um, having a child who seemed to be completely cut off from the world, um, seemed to be not engaging in the world at all and being able to get in that child's bubble and have that child have a a wonderful communication experience um, as a result of letting me in. I just think was so special and um, yeah so that just that changed the trajectory of my career. Wow so you found this passion area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then well we'll get to your experiences post-graduation because it sounds like you probably followed this path of working in the early intervention space with autistic kids. Let's veer back a bit. The placement you just talked about was that your final one Yes. Of the course, yeah. Okay, so you finished on a high. Thank goodness because I had my bad one before that and Mm. I was a little bit broken. So to go into um, a field that that really suited my skill set and into a team that was so incredibly supportive and encouraging, um, I was very lucky to have that as my last placement. Very lucky. You said that you felt broken after that. Oh, yeah. Uh, previous placement can you talk to me a bit about that experience here we go okay how long here we go buckle up (laughs) okay so the year before I started the masters I 
I had some really big mental health problems. So I um, entered into a quite major depressive episode and struggled with um, depression, anxiety um, going forwards. I'm really good now, by the way, <laughs> just for the happy story at the end. But um, I went into the course um, knowing that I had these challenges and honestly, I wasn't even sure I was going to make it through the course. Um, but the uni had a wonderful equality and diversity centre. And um, I went and spoke with them about what I was going through. And they helped um, come up, helped me come up with a bit of a plan um, to make me successful at uni. And um, yeah, that was great. So part of that meant that um, that I had this plan and before I went into placements I had to let my clinical educator know I've got this plan and um, these are you know some of the things if I need an extra night to work on something because I've been feeling a bit anxious you know this this plan says that that's okay to let me have that time so I told my clinical educator and she over the course of the placement reiterated time and time again to me that um, if I was experiencing mental health challenges that I should not be a speech pathologist and that was that was absolutely drummed into me and from from that point onwards she decided to I'm going to use the word bully yeah it was yep it was for sure bullying. Yep. Yes. So, so just adding adding a disclaimer there. Erin was on placement with me. I was. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, yeah. It's very upsetting. It, it was upsetting to observe at the time. I'm so glad you got through it. Mm. Yeah. It was really hard to watch this unfold. Mm. Yeah. So um, basically, I went to pieces, and I was I was not a good speech pathology student when I was there because um, of all the unfair criticism um, and the harsh treatment I was getting, I would go there and I, I would miss, I would miss a swallow. Um, I would, yeah, I, I would miss things and, and not do things as, as well as I could have. Um, was I in a supportive environment? And some, one thing that made um, made it a lot better was um, without talking to me, Erin and another um, speech pathology student that were on placement with me went um, went and sought out our our placement coordinator from the uni and told her what was going on. And that meant that when I had conversations with that placement coordinator, that she was already in the headspace of, okay, you're being unfairly treated, not, okay, is this just because you're not performing on placement? So that was really helpful. And then the other thing that was really nice was I kept having um, nursing staff come up to me saying, we are so sorry for the way you are being treated. This is not fair. Really? They observed it, did they? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They would, um, yeah, she would dress me down um, in front of everybody. Yeah, it was, it was really, really nasty. And I suppose, yeah, this, is, this has shaped who I am as a teacher and who I am as a professional practice educator so incredibly. I now have this real desire to 
create an environment where students can show off all the best of their skills, where they can bring out the best in them. Um, because I feel like the absolute opposite happened to me. And yeah, it nearly broke me. You shouldn't have things that you divulge as, you know, a necessary part of the clinical process that shouldn't be held against you. Mm. And yeah, I just remember some of the things that the supervisor would say to you, like worried that you were going to be unsafe with patients. Exactly. She said things more harsh than that, but it just feels awful to repeat. Um, She made a comment about your notes and your spelling. And I do remember her saying, like, you shouldn't be a speech pathologist. Like, that's like not okay. To say that someone should not even enter the profession um, is just, I think it's dangerous. Beck, there were obviously lots of things that were not okay um, about that placement. And I think one thing that was really frustrating, many things were obviously frustrating to observe when you were being bullied by your supervisor. But one thing that was really frustrating was that they didn't get to see your beautiful bedside manner with patients. Oh, that's very sweet of you, Erin. Yeah, I feel like they were so on your back about all the clinical stuff that they actually missed the part of a student, the part of a speech pathologist that you actually can't teach and that's the heart and you have that in spades. The way you were with patients and how you made them feel um, I felt was really um, unparalleled and they didn't get to see that, which is their loss. That's very sweet of you. No, I think... I, I know that their style of supervising me um, brought out the absolute worst in me and I spent, I spent my time crying my way around the wards <laughs> and um, there's no way that when someone's in that state that they can do their best. So, And that's where I was so lucky to have um, two such wonderful placements following that placement um, because yeah, I, I got to see, okay, it's it's not what, what they're saying about me isn't true. Mm. Um, and I can do a lot better than that in the uh, in a better circumstance. Yeah, you didn't let that placement define you. Yeah, well, I was lucky. Um, I actually got thank you to um, Aaron and the other. Um, speech pathology student um, who went and spoke with our uh, placement coordinator Um, I got pulled out of that placement and actually put in a different hospital um, with a different supervisor and basically this supervisor was told have a look at her assess her tell us whether she's entry level or not and um, I went there and um, she was such a lovely supervisor it brought out the best in me and there was no problems with me passing my adult placement so I was lucky that was a that was a nice um, nice way to sort of tell myself it's okay it's the situation it's not you Mm. Mm. and it sounds like that experience really shaped well obviously shaped some of your work experiences later on you know the direction you go but also in that work role you have now as a supervisor it probably shaped how you are with students it a hundred it a hundred percent has shaped who I am with the students so I never want anybody to go through what I went through and um you know I want to see what the students can do not um see what they can't do and I think that we have a uh responsibility as supervisors to bring out the best in our students. Yeah, absolutely. What advice do you have for a student who feels like they're struggling on placement? 
I would say make sure that you um, communicate with your uni. So whoever your placement coordinator is, make sure you um, talk with them right from the very start. Don't wait until things are going really badly. Speak with them to start with. You know, there are options that, um, that they can take in order to support you better. That's a great point. And I know when I did some clinical supervision um, for students that did have, what did you call it before, an access plan? What was it called? Uh, well, at ACU, they're called IEPs. Okay. Like an individual education plan kind exactly, of. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I know, you know, for example, students that have those, they, they, you may not be feeling like you need to use it or need to use the modifications provided by mm-hmm. it, but mm-hmm. take every opportunity to have a meeting with your supervisor anyway to say, you know, I'm feeling pretty good right now, but if something comes up, here's what I'm going to need rather than waiting until something does crop up. The more the supervisor knows, the best they can help. Well, most of them. Well, most of them are that. Like, um, I like that. <laughs> yeah. So, would you have done anything differently in that acute placement, knowing what you know now about how it all played out? And would you have done anything differently, or you were just so deep in the trenches that you couldn't see? This isn't my general advice for um, students on placement. In fact, it's the opposite of what I would say my advice would be. But I would never have said a single thing. I would have just gone in there, um, done my job, and I think if I hadn't have said something, um, I wouldn't have been in the situation I was. Mm, so you would not have disclosed your additional um, requirements? Mm, no, not at all. Mm. But I think that most supervisors are fantastic with this sort of thing and when they hear that somebody... Um, does have some mental health challenges, usually they go above and beyond to support that student. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's not going to be the same experience for everybody. No, you just were very, very unlucky in that experience you had. Mm, Something like that. Something like that. But thankfully you had some positive experiences after that and then that really started your early career. So tell me about post-graduation life. What was your first job? First job was at Pinark Disability Support. So I did my early intervention placement um, in my final year. Absolutely loved it, fell in love with autism. And um, on this placement, there was a lady that worked there that um, was raving about her last job, which was at Pinark Disability Support. And she said she got heaps and heaps of PD, heaps of support, lots of growth opportunities as a new graduate working there. So then a job came up there and I took it. So it meant traveling an hour and a half, hour 45 to work every day and to and from every day. (laughs) So it was a lot, but it was so worth it. I had the most amazing experience. I got to work as part of a transdisciplinary team. So I got to learn lots of things, you know, with autism, it was lots about sensory processing, which was um, so valuable to know. Um, They gave me heaps of PD. The support was as much as I wanted. So I might have had, let's say I had formal supervision once a week, but then I could ask questions of the people around me at any stage and everyone was so supportive. So I can't, I'm extremely grateful for that uh, new grad opportunity. Wow, it sounds like you had so much support. Yeah, I did. I did. I was so lucky. 
Yeah, because I think a lot of people felt quite isolated in their grad roles. Uh, maybe mm. travel, you know, maybe they might have had an office base with colleagues, but then they were traveling out to homes or schools. Um, but it sounds like you had a, a team around you a lot of the time. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there was, you know, there would have been about mm, 40 therapists in the team. Wow. And just um, some really great um, depth of knowledge in the team as well. Did you get to do sessions with those other professionals? Yeah, lots lots of the time. So this was the model before NDIS and so nothing had a dollar amount attached to it. So basically we could do whatever we could fit in in that um, amount of time. So we would do um, lots of joint visits where we would upskill each other in um, the other's profession and, yeah. Amazing. How long did you stay in that job for? couple of years and then it was just the driving that um, made me move. Yeah, that is a lot of driving. <laughs> mm, mm. So what opportunity did you take next? So then I moved down to a job in the Broadmeadows, Roxburgh Park, Craigieburn area, um, same, same field, early intervention. And that was, um, again, a wonderful beautiful team they they were um super supportive um super knowledgeable just yeah just more than more than you could ever ask for they were mm. um the populations we were working with were very interesting so broad meadows had a lot of um substance substance abuse and so that was very interesting lots of child protection involvement so working in with the speech pathology service in with child protection, um, in with whatever else was going on for that that Oof. family. Yeah, that was good fun. And then... Um, <laughs> that was good fun, she says. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was great fun. Sounds intense. No, it was great fun. And then the Roxburgh Park, um, Craigieburn area, there was lots of um, refugees, which was, again, another um, wonderful experience to go through. It sounds like you've had some really uh, unique cohorts in each workplace. Yeah. And really great teams within those workplaces. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that that would be something that I would say for new grads to really have a look at is what is the team like and what can you learn from them? Yeah, it's really important because you do spend, you spend a lot of time with your clients, but you also spend a lot of time with your colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Beck, you came into speech pathology as a voice person and voice was the, your passion. You're a singer. Where is voice in these early years of your career? Is it still there somewhere? Yeah, so I continued to teach singing and do gigs on the side of speech. Um, so that was oh, a couple of nights a week teaching and a Saturday. So I was a bit of a workaholic before I had my son. Yeah, and then I went on to have a small business on the side of speech pathology as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that was Prime Vocal Studios. And we did a bit of voice therapy and singing teaching from that. So I would do, I'd do part-time early intervention through the day and then voice therapy and singing teaching of an evening. Wow. And then at a certain point, that sort of faded to the background and the early intervention and now that I guess the teaching at uni, they took over. What changed for you with voice? Look, 
you know, I will always have a soft spot in my heart for voice, <laughs> but I think my passion for autism really started to develop and take over where I wanted my career to go. Mm. Um, so it's not that I not that I don't like voice; it's that I like autism more. <laughs> oh, and I bet that was unexpected for you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it was. So do you think it was that placement, your final placement, that really opened that door for this passion area for you? Yes, I absolutely think it was. So yeah, it was very interesting that um, that doing that placement, I had these amazing experiences with children with autism. But interestingly enough, as I was doing this placement, I was coming home to my then boyfriend, who's now my husband, <laughs> and I'd be saying to him, oh, that little thing you did, that was quite autistic of you. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, that little thing you did was quite autistic. That little thing you did was quite autistic. And eventually we got to the point where before we even had the discussion, both him and I knew that he was autistic. Wow. And, um, yes, and then he went off and had a chat with the um, psychologist and, yeah, sure enough, he's autistic. So it was really interesting to see my professional life start to develop down the autism path and then my personal life start to look that way as well and then so then we progressed and got married and had a child and that child has turned out to be autistic as well so my little life is full of autism yeah, and it's interesting thinking back to the beginning of this interview when you said prior to that uh, clinical placement you hadn't met any autistic people before. It turns no. out you were living with one and didn't know. Yes, yeah, that's so true. I never even thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> but then through your work and, and learning, then you were able to sort of see that in other parts of your life. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And it was interesting when my son, uh, when, when my son started to show some traits, my family were saying to me, you're, that's just because you work in the area, you're seeing things that aren't there and all the rest. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't think so. I think I'm seeing a bit of autism. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a good point. We can be hypersensitive to any anything communication related. Mm. So it was interesting your, parent, your family pointed that out. Mm, that's right. That's right. So I was noticing some little traits and um, I think as he got older, it become more became more obvious to those around him mm -hmm. um, and the family and things. But, um, but the big moment for us was he was about 17 months old and he, um, he became unwell and he completely, completely shut down so he went into his own little bubble like a bomb could have gone off next to him and he wouldn't have he wouldn't have blinked mm. um and I, to start with I thought oh gosh he's just really unwell and then the cold symptoms went away but he stayed in this little bubble of non-responsiveness mm. and um it was at that moment where I knew this is a developmental regression. So he went from having 50 words, 50-something words, down to completely nonverbal. Wow. That's pretty confronting as a parent, I'm sure, especially as a speech pathologist parent. Yeah, it was – It honestly, you know, I'd like to say that um, 
I'd like to say that I didn't mind at all because um, of all the neurodiversity reasons, but the honest truth is, is that I'd been working with families that had been going through grief and going through so many challenges with their children, um, with their autistic children. And I think when, when it became apparent that I had an autistic child, I think all of those stories and all of that grief um, came back onto me. Mm. Um, I'm now in a really good place with it all and, um, and I wouldn't change him for anything. He's, he's absolutely wonderful exactly the way he is and we're working through, we're working through life's challenges and, and the great things that happen as well day by day. It just looks different to how maybe you imagined. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Were you able to access a range of supports for yourself and for him? Yeah, I was. I was. So um, very, very lucky. So I put all my best advocacy skills into practice (laughs) (laughs) to get him. um, I got him speech pathology, even though I'm a speech pathologist. I think it's been great having separate speech pathology um, as well. So, yeah, got him speech, OT and, and psychology. Amazing. So, and then for, for me, well, it's, it's Fortage, but it's also for me. Um, we've got an autism play group we attend and it's, it's just so wonderful. You go there and, you know, you could come in with your child doesn't have shoes on, no one bats an eye. Um, you know, you could, you could come in and, um, you know, have chicken nuggets in your lunchbox and that's it. And nobody bats an eye. (laughs) Um, just a really beautiful, supportive group of parents um, and, you know, then the kids come in and they adjust their beautiful neurospicy selves. Oh, I love that term, neurospicy. I love it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what has surprised you about your career? I mean, I'm surprised you're not in voice, but I'm not surprised that you end up where you are given your life experiences. What surprised you? Yeah, look, I think it is the whole shift between um, between voice and um, disability. I think has been the the biggest change. I was I was absolutely diehard voice, like that was my absolute passion. And then when I found autism, it just it just totally changed. But yeah, that's been that's definitely been a surprise. Have you taken any big risks in your career? Yes. I would say when I started Grasshoppers, that was a big risk. So moving from a job that I think when you work for somebody else, you know you're going to get paid at the same time every fortnight, the same amount. You've got nothing to nothing to worry about in terms of the consistency of the cash flow. Whereas when moving to your own business, you're at the mercy of when people pay their invoices and how quickly you can get your invoices out. Um, so the cash flow is definitely a um, has been a big risk to take on, but well worth it. Well worth it. What do you like about having your own business? I love just being able to set the parameters that align with my values. So I love I love um, supporting the students and um, and you know um, inspiring the next generation of speech pathologists. <laughs> oh, I wish I could be a student again, just so I could have you as a supervisor. You would be the best. 
Oh, thanks, Erin. <laughs> yeah, students are seriously so lucky to have you as their supervisor, Beck, because you would look at them first as a human being and then as a speech pathology student. And I could just tell that, yeah, you want people to succeed. And so you would really set people up to do that. Yeah, I think I think that is that's so important. And from my experiences and just knowing how with that bad acute placement that I had, I had so much to show and so much that I could do that I never got the chance to um, prove or demonstrate. And I know that in the other environments where I had supportive um, supervisors that I thrived. So um, I really just want to create those experiences for our AHAs and the students. Amazing. Now, I'm thinking about uh, everyone's got something that's tricky for them, right? And could there be anything that is a genuine barrier to being a speech pathologist? Like if someone has uh, maybe a speech sound error in their own speech or if they stutter or if maybe they take longer to process, they might have ADHD. Like could there be any barriers or do you feel like no matter what you're coming in with, you, you can equally be as good a speech pathologist as someone that didn't have that? It's a leading question. I think as long as you are open to um, looking at what your strengths and what your weaknesses are and being open to finding the solutions to your weaknesses, I think anybody can be a speech pathologist. I know um, ACU is really, I'm going to say, tough on people presenting with different um, speech or language or communication um, difficulties, and right from the word go, they um, they help them identify it and um, give them the tools um, to work through those challenges. And I think as long as the student is open to working on those challenges, there's no reason they can't be as great as the next person. Amazing. And that might be the reason why they chose the profession in the first place. They might have experienced it themselves as a child or as an adult and then gone, I want to help other people like someone helped me. Spot on. We're actually having um, uh, quite a few autistic speech pathology students coming through, which I think is just absolutely incredible. And there are there are definitely areas that... Um, you know, common themes that come out with the autistic students that they need to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they can offer, you know, especially if they go into the field where they're working with autistic people, as autistic speech pathologists, there is so much that they can offer. Mm-hmm. And it's really, yeah, really inspiring. Well, you can't beat that lived experience. You can do as much learning as you can, but if you haven't lived that experience either as the person themselves or maybe like a close family member, uh, it's yeah, it's a different ball game. That's right. So true. Hmm. So one last question about the supervising aspect and students who might be mm-hmm. struggling in some way. Do you have advice for a supervisor who isn't quite sure how to have a conversation with a student about something that is concerning them? So maybe it's that the student, maybe their notes are messy or, you know, maybe they've got lots of grammatical errors in their reports or perhaps they have a, a like a speech error in their own speech. How could a supervisor delicately, positively and helpfully approach that conversation, do you think? Look, I think in general, speech pathologists are really good at being uh, 
client-centred, patient-centred, strengths-based. And then when it comes to working with students, sometimes we forget all of those skills. So I think the skills that we use with our with our clients um, need to be pulled across into how we work with our students. So we want the students, we want our clients to be able to achieve their goals. We identify with them their strengths and their weaknesses. We use their strengths to help them achieve um, achieve goals with their weaknesses. That's all the same things that um, a student needs from a supervisor. Yeah, and I guess we can think of students kind of like clients but also like colleagues. They're kind of this in-between. They're a bit of a colleague but they're a bit of a client. So that's an interesting perspective. Mm, absolutely. Hmm. Beck, who do you admire most professionally? This is a tricky one. I'm going to draw back to what I was saying before about the autistic students. And I think I would say at the moment, you know, a few of the autistic students that I've been working with and their dreams and aspirations for what they are going to do to change the future <laughs> um, are really inspirational. And so I would say, I would say them. Hmm, nice. And have you done any particularly notable PDs in your time? I love Hannon. So um, Hannon, I think, um, works in really nicely with early intervention mm -hmm. and it also sets you up for doing parent coaching, um, you know, educator coaching as well as the direct therapy mm -hmm. yourself. So that would be the most valuable um, PDs I've done. Yeah, nice. What do you think's in your future? Oh, look, probably expanding grasshoppers a bit. Um, I think I would like to take on somebody else to um, do some more mentoring of the AHAs. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, look, possibly, this is really possibly some more study. Um, I have really enjoyed doing the tutoring as well. And so there's a little part of me that goes, maybe I should maybe I should go on and do something crazy like a PhD or something. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, maybe. That's a big, massive maybe. <laughs> uh, what would you do it in? What topic? Uh, autism. <laughs> yeah, <well>. <laughs> figured. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably something to do with autism and parent coaching. Mm. Ooh, okay, nice. If there's a speech pathologist who is listening to this and they are in the northern area of Melbourne and wanting to maybe reach out to you in terms of um, helping you expand your practice, can they just search for you online? Yes, Grasshoppers Therapy, um, online, Facebook, Instagram, any of the above. All of the things, amazing. <laughs> Beck, do you have any advice? You've had a lot of advice for students, which has been really helpful. Do you have any advice for early career clinicians or maybe speech pathologists who've been working for a while and maybe they're wanting to uh, dip their toe in uh, the early intervention pond? <laughs> I think the biggest bit of advice I would say is there are so many jobs out there in the NDIS field that nobody has to settle for second best so if you have a job if you're not getting the support you need if you're not getting the learning opportunities you need if you're feeling overwhelmed with the caseload there are better jobs out there there are some fantastic speech pathologists who are fantastic bosses and provide wonderful learning environments um, for speech pathologists to um, develop their skills and so I, I just wouldn't settle 
Amazing. I think that ties back in nicely with your early experiences on placement. The kind of theme that's going through this is your mental health needs to come first. And if you're not feeling safe and okay, then you're not in the right place. And just a change of environment could be the thing that you need. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Beck, thank you so much for getting very personal. I really appreciate you sharing about those really tough experiences. Uh, it will help other people. I hope so. And, you know, if you're if you're someone that, that is in the middle of a situation like I was describing, um, be that whether you're in a workplace that isn't well suited and your mental health is not great or you're a student, um, you know, um, doing your best to get through, know that it's not forever and take those, be active in taking those chances on making changes to make your environment um, as supportive as possible because you don't have to feel like that forever and you don't have to um, work in those environments forever. Great advice. And I will attach some resources, I guess, to the show notes. Are there any uh, online resources that you can think of off the top of your head? I'm thinking Beyond Blue. Yeah, Lifeline. Lifeline's fantastic. So Lifeline, Beyond Blue, obviously the university itself. Yes, yes. Universities um, offer um, counselling services. So, All right, Beck. thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to catching up again soon. Likewise. Thank you very much, Erin. Thanks, Beck. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Like, subscribe, follow, and make sure you have notifications turned on wherever you listen to podcasts so that you have access to episodes as soon as they drop. Catch you soon.